Before we start today's episode, I'd simply like to say that it's uh, it's been a sad days here in the United Kingdom and indeed in much of the world um, due to the passing of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. And I had the, um, the privilege and the pleasure of meeting her uh, when she came to visit our offices at the Duke of Edinburgh's International Award Foundation, where I was heading up development uh, almost 10 years ago now. And she came with a radiant smile, and um, His Royal Highness Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, was also there, as was His Royal Highness the Earl of Wessex, Prince Edward. And it was a glorious moment, and she took the time to meet and greet every single person in my team, and indeed in the whole office. And, um, and I just wanted to reflect on that. And for me personally, it's been a period of reflection. It's, um, it, you know, I've never known any other monarch uh, in, in the United Kingdom. And um, yeah, so I just wanted to say that before we kick things off today. Thank you. And here's the show. Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Today's conversation is all about income inequality. And it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Nick Hanauer. Nick is a philanthropist. He is a signatory of the Giving Pledge. He is the founder of Civic Ventures, and he's someone who's deployed a lot of time, resources, and energy in order to change policy, especially around the minimum wage. Today's conversation will delve into the world of economics, politics, and policy. And without further ado, Nick, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome you onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Excellent. So you're out there in Montana in the U.S., I am in uh, boat, uh, Big Sky, Montana. Excellent. And I'm here in London. So we're overcoming the time difference. Why don't we start by finding out a little bit about Civic Ventures? What's that all about? Yeah. So Civic Ventures is a team of political professionals that operate at the intersection of policy and politics. We believe that the best way to generate positive social change is to is to change the laws, policies, and norms that create the structure of societies. And, and with respect to most big problems the world faces, in the absence of fixing the underlying structures, you don't, you, the best you can do is ameliorate. And uh, so, I mean, you know, by way of example, uh, this is, of course, a primitive uh, caricature. You know, you walk by, a soup kitchen and the line is very, very long. And there are two things you might do about that. One is to uh, try to find ways to provide more soup. And the other is to ask yourself why the line at the soup kitchen is so long and what you might do to eliminate the need for it. And we're very much in the latter camp. You know, we're much more interested in eliminating the need for soup kitchens than in pouring money into soup kitchens uh, because people need them so much. So, And you're mentioning soup kitchens and perhaps not entirely surprising, a key focus area for you is income inequality. 
Yeah, for sure. You know, I had this moment of, I think, clarity and panic hmm. around 2007 when I got a hold of the IRS tax tables that that described uh, income shares over time. And in the United States, and I should say most of our focus is in the United States, uh, in 1980, the top 1% had about an 8% share of national income. And the bottom 50% of Americans shared about 18% of national income. And if you fast forwarded to 2007, uh, the top 1% share had grown from 18 to something like 21, 22%. And the bottom 50% share had fallen from about 18% to about 12%. And all I did was throw those numbers, those trends in a spreadsheet, and just assumed that the, that the pattern would continue, right? Um, and 30 years later, it was going to be like the top 1% had 45% share and the bottom 50% had like a 5% share or something like that. And it does not take deep thinking to recognize that that circumstance that would create uh, a crisis in the society that that you're not really operating in a capitalist democracy anymore you're you know you will end up in some sort of feudal authoritarian society and so i panicked and began to think about how one might address that and have been working on that still and and it, uh, of course um it's safe to say that things have gotten much worse since then. And um, a couple a couple of uh, follow-on thoughts. The first is to contextualize economic inequality in the United States in a couple of different ways. Uh, so the median full-time worker in America today earns about $50,000 a year. If that person had been had simply retained their same share of GDP since 1975, instead of earning $50,000, they would earn someplace between $95,000 and $100,000 a year. And um, even a, a person in the 90th percentile, right, uh, today would earn about $135,000 a year. If they had retained their same share of GDP, they would earn about $185,000 a year. So the transformation of the American economy from one in which everyone largely shared in the benefits of growth to an economy where only the top 1% really share in the direct benefits of economic growth has been a catastrophe, not just for the economy, but for um, the society writ large. And this is the second point I want to make that I think is so important and, 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 and largely underappreciated by most folks, mm -hmm. is that if you understand human psychology in a, in a modern way, if you understand people not as homo economicus as these sort of rational calculators, but as homo sapiens, as largely... Um, heuristic, uh, emotional, and reciprocal animals, right? That reciprocity is basically the most fundamental part of our psychology because we can't operate uh, without cooperation. 
which you can see quite clearly is that rising inequality is much more than just an economic inconvenience for the folks who are getting less. It actually shreds the reciprocity norms that make social cohesion and hence democracy possible. And, you know, I have been predicting for a very long time now that if we didn't address the inequality we have at the scale of the problem, that the economy that it wouldn't the economy wouldn't just collapse, that, that the society would collapse. And if you follow American politics at all, it's hard to not see that that is happening in front of our eyes. And it, you know, and this is the net, it is the inevitable outcome of a society where virtually every family becomes economically more challenged every year, while a few of us, like myself, uh, live beyond the dreams of avarice. And that difference, I mean, here's the thing, is that if everybody was struggling, that does not destroy the society. <laughs> but if most people are struggling and a few are have obviously rigged the game and are and are and are you know pulling away from everybody else that that makes people incredibly angry uh, at, 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 at effectively at a biological level and if you don't address that they will continue to be angry and they'll tear the society apart so yeah and when you're saying people will get angry uh, a piece you wrote and uh, a word as I associate with you is you know the, the pitchforks are coming. Right. And, um, <laughs> the and you're not, are... the pitchforks are coming, right? Now, you don't need robust powers of deductive reasoning uh, to, to figure out that things aren't uh, a utopia. Um, yeah. you, you are one of those 1%, or even actually a, a 0.01%, percent or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I am. You are, um, <laughs> you, you've done well. And yeah. you, you are also, though, planning to give a lot of this money away. You're a signatory yeah. of the Giving Pledge. Correct. Um, so your heart's there in the right place, and you're you're obviously deploying uh, quite a robust intellect, let's say, to to try to change the the structure of things. Right. Um, how do we do this? So okay, you've identified the problem, but yeah, yeah, and but uh, you know, I think that I think that the problem, you know, economic inequality is not a problem; it is largely the problem, uh, and. You know, whether you care about government deficits or failing schools, you show me a community filled with thriving families who have economic security, and I will show you a high functioning society, right? That, you know, great schools are a product of great neighborhoods. Uh, and uh, governments having enough money to invest back in the society. Uh, uh, is a product of um, robust incomes for middle-class people, right? Like you, you can actually do math that shows that if the United States, you know, that, 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 that all of the current budget deficit that, the, that America currently suffers from is not a product of profligate uh, uh, government spending. It's a product of the effectively robbing most middle-class people of enough income so that they can pay taxes on it, right? So all these, uh, so much of the social pathologies, whether it's the criminal justice system or gun violence or all these things are wrapped up in this, in a society that 
that it makes it harder and harder every single year for ordinary families to get by. Can I share just one other statistic sure. that I think is so uh, telling and important? Is that it, in, in you know in 1980 it took about 30 weeks of work for a single American earner to basically pay for the basics of life: housing, food, healthcare, education. You know, today it takes in the range of 55 weeks to do the same thing, which is more than a year. You know, it simply get it got worse every single year. And so, it, 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 you know, you cannot knit a society together. You cannot expect people's political, social, and cultural interests to converge if their economic interests are diverging, you know, virtually at the speed of light, you know, like it, it's just, it, it, it's just impossible. And so uh, the only way you can fix this is to address the, the economics, the underlying economics at the scale of the problem. And again, by way of example, in the, in the United States of America, it takes about, uh, I think, I think the aggregate amount of philanthropy devoted to things associated with poverty is about $50 billion a year. Sounds like a lot of money, but in aggregate, the amount of incremental income that has gone from the bottom 90% to the top 1% is $2.5 trillion. So that is the scale of the problem two and a half trillion dollars a year. So I don't care how rich you are, uh, it, it, even if you're Bill Gates or Warren Buffett or Pickett, your ability to impact that deficit in any way other than addressing policy is de minimis. It's impossible, right? And so you have to, you have to rearrange the economic policies in ways that can address it. And so among the projects that we have worked on over the last 10 years is the is the $15 minimum wage uh, for non-American listeners to the, of the podcast. Uh, I, I, I'll remind you that the minimum wage in the United States is federal minimum wage is $7.25 an hour, unless you work for tips, in which case it is $2.13 plus tips. It is as close to slavery as one could reasonably get. It's so crazy and nuts in today's world uh, that, it, that it you know boggles the, the mind. Uh, it's simply it's simply impossible for someone to live on those wages. Now, one thing. Yeah, go ahead. Just no, just one thing. Uh, going on what you mentioned about the, the role of philanthropy. Philanthropy is incredibly small relative to the the scale of the, the problem of the problem absolutely and let me ask you this then uh is is part of the current state of affairs a function a consequence of um perhaps a, a winner takes all dynamic that we see you know if you're the uh, first mover in in digital well you know a hundred percent so it, it, let me just make this i want to make this subsidiary point about 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 the about the change so the 15 dollar minimum wage so moving the federal minimum wage in the united states from 725 to 15 which is what we have been aiming to do now since 2012 is a 450 billion dollar per year intervention right it's 10 times as much as all of the philanthropy combined. Just that one policy 
And the thing is, is that a hundred million dollars is probably all it takes to change that policy, right? To do the politics necessary to to rearrange that um, that you know that that policy. And so, on a relative basis, a tiny investment, a tiny philanthropic investment, even though it's not C three giving, right? It's it's political giving or it's advocacy uh, gives you a return 10 to a hundred times higher than a lot of the other, a, a lot of the other um, opportunities that you might have to give away money. Uh, with respect to the, the second question that you asked, which is, isn't, is, isn't this a product of the winner take all nature of our economy? Um, that is absolutely true, but, 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 it, but it, it needs to be understood that market economies have never not been winner take all constructs because they are and i hate to use a fancy term but they're non-ergodic systems which means that complex systems like economies are are characterized um uh, by uh positive feedback loops based on uh um path dependence luck and compounding so the the actual economy is not like a game of checkers where or chess where um you know basically people compete and the better people win it's a game like monopoly where it, it is always the case it's never not the case that someone ends up with everything in the absence of countermeasures right like and and the problem is is that you know middle classes are not the natural outcome of a market economy. They are deliberate constructions of policy that are geared towards moderating these, these uh, compounding effects. Because it's not, it's not just advantages that compound over time in a market economy, it's disadvantages that compound over time in a market economy. And this is in the this is in the fundamental mathematics of these systems. It is, it's not something that you can um, wish away. You have to have policies designed to to hold these compounding effects down to reasonable level. And there will always be inequality. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm a I've founded thirty five companies. I am a rabid uh, capitalist. But capitalism, un, you know, uh, unmanaged will eat itself, right? So, you know, I agree. Sensibly regulated markets are, yeah. Know, the, this is the only way we can operate. So, in terms of these countermeasures, as you, as yeah. you pointed it, uh, are, are, are is is part of the toolkit uh, looking at the at the market concentration, monopoly power, trying one hundred percent, one hundred percent. I mean, so. Again, it, it, and I know, guess, and I guess, just to just to on that specific point, when you're looking to change the overall structure, as it were, of the system, yeah. is is that part of what you're advocating? In other words, is a hundred percent, yes, yeah. And but let's 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 zoom out even more from the the per particular interventions that I think are necessary to the thinking that got us into this mess. Right, because the arrangements that the economic arrangements that we live with today are a byproduct of a particular way of thinking about 
economic cause and effect that originated in the 40s, 50s, and 60s that people call by various names, market fundamentalism or neoliberalism or whatever it is, neoclassical economics. And these ideas were not evil, but they were wrong, right? And, you know, understanding the economy, for example, as a Pareto optimal equilibrium, which is one of the central features of neoclassical economic thinking, is, you know, on the face of it, a... a um, uh, a, a neutral, uh, thoughtful way to think about economics, but 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 it's not for a couple of reasons. First of all, the economy is not an equilibrium system; it just isn't. It's a complex adaptive ecology. So, thinking of it as an equilibrium system uh, is massively misleading, and it's mostly misleading and harmful because it, within that framework of thought, if one thing goes up like wages, another thing must go down by definition, like jobs. And that is where this thinking comes from that leads people to believe, reasonable people to believe, that if you raise wages for working people, it will decrease the number of jobs that we have. And that equilibrium thinking can thus be understood as this insane Remember that in it, within an equilibrium, any intervention in it pushing, pushes, the, pushes the equilibrium away from Pareto optimality and therefore harms everyone in it, which means that the existing arrangements have to be the best and most efficient, which is awesome if you're at the tippy top, right? Because, because what that does is creates this circumstance within which you get to argue that any intervention in that arrangement will harm everyone, or in the parlance of our times, harm the very people we intend to help. And therefore, it is both impractical and immoral to intervene. It, it, if you can think of a better way to protect the status quo, I, 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 I want to know what it is. <laughs> so, we <laughs> <Right>? are, so we are not... <laughs> We're not in a Pareto optimal uh, state of affairs. We are not. <laughs> and the questions that lead from that are two that actually. One is, what are you learning by looking at your next door neighbor up north? What are you learning by looking at the Nordics, perhaps? They have a vibrant uh, entrepreneurial yeah. uh, culture, yet also a social fabric that is, I think, quite uh, yeah. quite cohesive. and. So what are you learning from those? And then in terms of the actual policy advocacy that you guys are trying to drive forward with with the, the House, the Senate, the yeah. local legislature, what are those exact, uh, well, without getting into the details necessarily, but yeah. what is it that you're trying no, no, to no. drive and change, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so you're dead right. Uh, you know, the, uh, the United States is gripped by a lot of incredibly crazy ideas uh, today. So it's hard to sort out which are the craziest, but um, uh, but definitely the sort of neoclassical, neoliberal way of thinking, uh, which is among other things that raising wages kills jobs, that tax cuts for rich people create growth, that any form of regulation harms productivity and economic growth, that, uh, that, it, uh, that people are paid their marginal product, that is to say exactly what they're worth, um, that there's always 
uh, a trade-off between increasing amounts of economic justice and economic efficiency. All of this stuff is a pack of lies. It's, it, it, it is derived from neoclassical economic thinking, which is an internally consistent, mathematically elegant uh, uh, framework of thought. It just is completely untethered from the reality of what happens on planet Earth. And so to the extent that people have ignored, have both embraced markets as a great way of evolving new solutions to human problems, which is what prosperity actually is, not GDP, um, and ignored these neoliberal rules, you end up with really high-functioning societies. So an another thing I think that's really important to remember is that markets are not efficient. That's, the, that's that sort of neoclassical thinking. Markets are one of the great social technologies ever invented because they are the most effective way to organize societies to evolve new solutions to human problems which is what prosperity really is. It has nothing to do with money or GDP. Those are just means of exchange. Um, and a, a robust market is uh, a market with lots of competitors that isn't concentrated, where everyone has access both to the products and to um, who is included in ways which enable them to both buy the products, but also to invent the new products. And if you structure a society in that way, you end up with the best of all possible worlds. I mean, probably, um, you know, in my opinion, the, the, the best path towards the highest functioning society humans are likely to be able to create. And, um, and uh, you know, so we, we don't have to, we don't need revolutions in how we manage our societies. We need, we merely need to understand that we have to deliberately include people in robust ways. And when we do, uh, things will get better very, very quickly. And so, um, so indeed, in places like Denmark and Sweden and Norway, and uh, certainly Canada competes, outcompetes the, Amer the United States and Australia and almost every place in the world, uh, where folks have embraced markets but moderated the worst tendencies, you tend to have great outcomes. And it's not, so it's not that complicated. So yes, you have to address corporate concentration and yes, you have to hold corporations to a high standard. And yes, you have to have rich people pay tax. These are not revolutionary ideas, right? This is, but, but you do have to do those things. And if you do, you end up with a pretty high functioning society. Now, what do your friends uh, say about your way of thinking? And by that, I don't mean necessarily those folks were sitting um, alongside of you who have also signed up to the Giving Pledge, but perhaps your neighbor, perhaps uh, the guy down the street uh, or the woman 10-minute uh, drive from where you are um, who are affluent and um, who might attend the same soiree or dinner party that you do. What happens in those conversations? What do they say? Do they say you're completely nuts? So, no. Uh, so when I, when I first started talking about economic inequality, virtually everyone I talked to was either dismissive or angered by these conversations. And when was that? 15 years ago. Okay. Um, and almost everyone, people either would not acknowledge that the problem existed or were deeply offended 
that you would even bring it up in polite conversation. Today, you pretty much have to go all the way to Texas to find somebody who denies that, you know, economic inequality doesn't exist and isn't a problem. The challenge becomes when you start to talk about the remedies, because most of my co- most of my peers are completely with me in my um, discussions of the demise of the middle class and the challenges that that creates, but they get very quiet uh, and um, they tend to mumble and look at their shoes when you start to talk about the actual interventions necessary to make things better. Um, and uh, there, with very few exceptions, you know, not that many folks who want to deal with this problem in a direct way. Uh, I mean, I, I, there's no nicer way to say it, I guess. It just, you know, everybody... And those solutions uh, to those problems, are is there a top three? Is there a top three? Well, yeah. So so most people think that taxing rich people more is the, is the answer. And don't get me wrong, that's a, that's a very important component. The problem is there's just not enough money there to make a difference. So, you know, like... Uh, so the top 1% of Americans, I think, earn in the range of $2.5 trillion a year. So let's say you, you, let's say you uh, tax them 10% more, 20% more. That's 250 to $500 billion a year on a $2.5 trillion problem, right? So the, the big advances to address this, these problems are in wages and simply requiring companies, in particular big companies, to pay their workers enough to get by without food stamps. And so that, and so the inter, the biggest interventions, the best interventions, will be ones that will raise wages materially. So, in the United States, if the minimum wage had tracked productivity gains over the last forty years, instead of being seven dollars and twenty five cents an hour, it would be twenty four dollars an hour. So, if you raise the minimum wage in the United States to twenty four dollars an hour, that would probably move about a trillion dollars per year to working people. The second most important intervention in our economy, in the United, in the, in the American economy, is something called, this is much more obscure and harder to understand, something called the overtime threshold. And the overtime threshold is the salary threshold below which if you work more than 40 hours a week, you automatically get paid time and a half, right? It's the way that the, the American system used to limit the number of hours that a company could uh, could uh, force you to work. And if they ask you to work more than 40, okay, they would pay you a lot more. Why is it so important? Because in the day when we used to have a thriving middle class, 65% of salaried workers and effectively 100% of, uh, of um, hourly workers were entitled to overtime, which meant that basically everybody got overtime. And what happened over the neoliberal era over the last 45 years is that standard basically was erased, that that basically almost no one gets paid overtime anymore uh, because uh, certainly salaried workers, because the standard, the threshold now is $35,000 a year, which includes 15% of salaried workers. And by, and at huge scale, people like me turned hourly workers into salaried workers so we wouldn't have to pay them overtime. So why does that matter? Well, if you turn 30 million jobs of 40 hours a week uh, into 20 million jobs 
of 60 hours a week, you have pocketed, I don't know, $500 billion or something like that, and taken 10 million jobs out of the economy, which is largely what has happened to the United to the American economy over the last 30, 40 years. And so that overtime threshold, that maximum hours thing needs to be restored to the former high watermark, which is in, in the United States in the range of $85,000 a year, and is one of the things that my team has been working on hardest for the last eight years. Um, what's that? What's that key takeaway? That and you know, this is a conversation we could continue for hours. I have a feeling. Yeah. Uh, and I and, and I'll and I'll and I'll point people. You have a podcast as well, so I think. Yeah, it's Pitchfork Economics. Yeah. So yeah. if this is remotely of interest to you, I think. Yeah. Head over there where for, we for, where we talk very specifically about the economic ideas that have led to this catastrophe and what what new kinds of economic ideas we might embrace to get us out of the mess. Um, but, but you know the key, the key takeaway is this that you know a lot of people think of me as you know lefty and you know I, I had this one very telling experience. You, you you remember the occupy thing that happened in the United States and the occupy thing was scary to a lot of people and there was this huge takeover in Seattle and you know, in those days, I was already well established as a as a warrior for economic justice, and I thought, well, if anyone, I ought to be able to talk successfully to the leaders of this movement about policy and what we could do together to make things better. And so, my team, you know, connected with them, and we invited these folks to my office. It's the first time in my career, the only time in my career where I've ever had a meeting where I felt physically threatened. And, you know, four of these folks came to visit me and it was absolutely clear that their anger and frustration was so deep that they actually, they didn't want to talk about the policies that would make the world better. They wanted to kill me and my family and burn everything we had to the ground and then we wanted to go, and then they wanted to go to all my friends' houses and kill them and their families and burn everything they had to the ground. And so I say to you as someone who thinks of me as lefty, I am what stands in between you and the real left, right? You should be not walking, but running towards policies that make ordinary people feel better about life and the future. Because if you do not, they are going to burn everything you love to the ground, one way or the other. And this is what wealthy people should be doing right now. We should be working together assiduously to raise wages for working people a lot. And if we do that, if we do that, everything will be fine. And if we don't do that, it is going to be terrible for all of us very very sobering indeed <laughs> nick thank you for joining me and joining us on the do one better podcast you've spoken from the heart a lot of stats and uh, a lot of passion as well i know people listening to it some will love it some will hate it some will think oh, i need to find out more which is always a good thing and i appreciate you taking the time it's uh it's very kind of you and i very much enjoyed speaking with you and meeting you for the first time fantastic so fun to chat. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Nick Hanauer. 
For information about this episode and nearly 200 other interviews and case studies with remarkable leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at Ligi.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show as well. It's been an absolute pleasure producing this episode for you and indeed producing every episode and case study for you week in and week out. Thanks so much for downloading and I'll catch you next week.